Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming a good friend, Delissi Cathini, to the show. Delissi is the Chief Technology Officer at ShiftGig, a workforce technology company focusing on empowering people to find local employment opportunities that fit their lifestyles, schedules, and career objectives. Delissi is responsible for the company's technology infrastructure, web and mobile applications, security, product engineering, and software architecture. Delissi has an impressive track record of designing and implementing large-scale enterprise SaaS as well as B2C products, leveraging modern agile development practices and building high-performing engineering teams. She joined ShiftGig to drive their engineering strategy and help the company continue to grow as a technology organization. Delissi brings 16 years of technology experience to ShiftGig and previously served as Director of Technology at Morningstar. She holds an MS from Central Michigan University and is very close to finishing her MBA at Northwestern University. She also spends time volunteering for Greenhouse Scholars. Welcome to the show, Thulissi. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Shelley. Uh, Thulissi, if you don't mind, can you please share with our listeners, uh, for those who aren't aware, what is ShiftGig? Yeah, um, ShiftGig, we are an on-demand uh, staffing platform, uh, which helps staffing agencies grow and scale their business. Our solution focuses on empowering workforce, giving them the flexibility and the choice for our clients to have a powerful, uh, to drive their business with strategic insights, basically understand how the, their workforce is working, understand what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And on the workforce side too, they are able to basically see what their next week looks like, next month looks like. And based on that, flexibly take the jobs that works for them and doesn't work and leave the opportunities that doesn't work for them. And uh, yeah, and staffing industry itself has uh, been very uh, paper and pen business traditionally, and we are looking to leverage technology to uh, basically help them scale all their businesses and reach uh, a broader range of workforce. Great, great. And and speaking of the tech industry, I mean, it's known that women have been falling out of, of tech for a while. What's your viewpoint on that? It is a little bit disappointing and on one end, but also very encouraging on the other end. Um, if you look at the history of number of women in, enrolled in computer science or even in the software industry, the numbers were looking pretty good earlier during the computer science revolution itself. But sometime around the 90s, the numbers started dropping down, even including enrollments into computer science program. And as even in, in some of the organizations I've been at, you'll see there's a lot of good number, good percentage of women working in um, entry level and junior level and even mid level engineering roles. But as they have to progress in their careers, something happens and you start seeing fewer and fewer women in senior leadership roles. So 
that's a huge problem in itself because software is in every aspect of your life. Technology touches every aspect of your life. And if you are following how the AI um, industry or algorithm or um, these fields are working, there's a lot of biases. And a lot of this comes from uh, basically not having necessarily a good representation of diverse force, workforce, even building these tools, building these technologies to have a different perspective. And it is really um, important that the industry starts seriously focusing on that. I know for the last uh, 10, 12 years, some companies versus others have started making progress by ways of at least acknowledging that there's a problem and uh, trying to make strides, but we are not there yet. And we are really, really far away. But uh, on the other side, I'm encouraged because there's so many conversations, very powerful conversations going on. And there's a lot of the, the Airbnb, for example, has um, the, I, I saw this blog post, I think, four or five years ago, um, has a very insightful blog post on how they change the number of women in their data science team by looking at the data on how they're interviewing, by looking at the data on how they're doing things uh, through the interview process, hiring process. So those those conversations are happening. They are happening louder and louder. So I, I'm encouraged by that, but we have a long way to go. Great. And speaking of, I'm just curious uh, what you or your team is doing or, or what we can share with other um, leaders who are listening in. You know, what can they do at an individual level? Because a lot of times, um, Managers don't know where to start with the topic of diversity. Yeah, and everybody has, you have to assume that in most of these companies, everybody has good intentions. Sometimes it's just, um, especially during the hiring process, so many teams are in a, fail to see the problem in their interviewing process necessarily. Um, for example, uh, so basically with the hiring process, I, the way I look at it is it's like a, it's like sales. It's first you have to find the right leads. You have to close the clients and then you have to retain them. It's the same thing. F there is a pipeline. I know a lot, it's easy to say there's no pipeline of candidates. You just have to work a little bit harder to find the pipeline of candidates, especially in a city like Chicago. There are so many groups. There's a tech group for Latino women. There's a tech group for women doing Python meetups. There's, there's so many groups that you can reach out to and find a pipeline of candidates. Go to, there are so many universities here that you can start reach and in the nearby states, you can start reaching out to women's group and start getting them into your application pool. And then from a hiring perspective, I think the biggest blind spot for people is they are not aware of their biases. For example, Google around 2005, 2006, they did some of their own data analysis on this and they had a great rubric or, or scoring system based on every candidate. And what they found was after they hired the women, a year later, they looked at how all of them performed in their jobs. They found that these interview scores were inversely proportional to how they were actually performing in their jobs. They did not understand why that was happening. And they, they at that time, there wasn't, uh, it, 
there wasn't the language of hidden bias or unconscious bias, that is the biggest blind spot for companies that they need to acknowledge that they need to make sure their interview process is as objective as possible. Go in really prepared. Go in with your entire team prepared as to what you're hiring for. I can't tell you how much of a difference that makes once you start doing that and being very diligent and start really understanding, are you asking the same kind of consistent questions across the board? You start seeing patterns of what you're doing well, what you're not doing well, where your biases are. And then when you debrief, it makes a huge impact in hiring diverse candidates. It's basically you need a good hiring process. Diversity will be an outcome of that. And then the third important piece, this is where I think we start losing women mid-career, is performance reviews. I can't tell you how many, the, the really large companies do a pretty, they have a reasonable framework I've found, like uh, whether it's the Motorola's or the Googles of the world, they, they used to, they have a reasonable framework, they have a reasonable process. Small companies, it's very different. Like a 20 people company, you just know everything is very obvious, very evident, I think. It's the companies in the middle that I found manager just picks someone for a promotion. And there's so much bias that goes into it. Women generally, especially, this is anecdotal though, but it's real. I found like, especially a few women I found who I've managed from international backgrounds do not ask for promotion. Do not ask for, they just assume if I'm doing a good job, it will come. And this happens sometimes with men too but more so than women. Um, So those are the things you need to, again, like your interview process, start paying attention to that. That is where women are dropping off a lot mid-career because you start seeing one or two promotions on your group that you think you're a better fit for, but didn't get it. That's enough to derail your career. And and that's a lost opportunity for the company. So those are a few things. That's a long-winded answer, but that almost works, I think. Pretty much, if you're able to be disciplined about that on the leadership team, you should, over the course of six months to a year, you will see a shift on your team. So one of the things I've always found interesting in hiring software developers or uh, technologists, um, it always felt like uh, there was somebody who introduced the concept, at least historically, right? I'm 47 years old. Um, you mentioned the the CS revolution and and, you know, Programming became, for want of a better term, attractive to people before it was kind of what nerds did, you know. So it worked great for me because it, you know, it was getting me out of my Dungeons and Dragons groups. So I had other <laughs> things to do, which was great. <laughs> but there's, we used to have in our interview process, you know, how did you get involved? When did you know that you loved doing this kind of stuff? And generally, the story started with a neighbor or an uncle or their dad. Or there was, and, and I just wonder from like, you know, is there ways that we could get even more people involved? Because I think that's the the connection, the in, the accidental connection to technology as a career is one of the biggest challenges from a diversity standpoint, whether that's economic diversity or, or you know, gender diversity. Um, do you see that as, as part of the challenge? And if so, is there ways that we can create our own kismet for other people of like introducing them to these, to these careers that are very social for some of us. Right. 
those who who aren't as the most social people. Uh, it's a it, but it is a team focused. It's a very artistic type of profession. There's a lot of creativity there. So um, I think a lot of people don't know that, and they they don't get that chance that that happens to a kismet moment of somebody help them. Uh, figure out that this is a career. Do you still think that that's a challenge or do you think there's enough awareness like, hey, this is a pretty good career path going on? So there isn't enough of awareness still in our communities, especially um, in, in wealthier schools, wealthier communities. I think there's a lot of facilities for kids, awareness, programming, classes that start very earlier on in either middle school or high school but in communities uh, where they're not economically well off and school districts where there isn't a lot of facilities, they're still probably lagging behind by quite a bit. Also, just the image that gets created around how who who are who can be programmers, you there's only a lot of men and only a lot you only see, a ton of white men or Asian men in these fields, and you don't see enough representation from minorities or women in senior leadership roles. And that creates a lot of biases and delusions about what's possible. And as such, we lose a lot of young women, a lot of minorities, just out of almost out of fear of not being aware or lacking the confidence that they can also do this. That's great. No, it's what well, and what one of the concepts that like, you touch on that I think is really relevant is there isn't, you know, like software development or being a programmer, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to like is it hard? Uh for some people, yes. For some people, they thoroughly enjoy it. Right? It's a very satisfying career. You know, and the, the the rigor of it is part of the satisfaction of like solving a problem and building something and then having it, you know, get it to a point where it works and it works well and then you can refactor it. And that's a really satisfying career. And there's not like a direct path where you'd say, hey, uh, you know, because you do this or you have done that, you're going to really love doing software development. The only thing I keep coming back to is something my CS110 teacher said was, you know, like, do you like solving puzzles, right? Do you do you like that? And and the point being, I think when we think about these these other you know potential these pools of talent, you know, does that mean everybody in that pool is going to like software development? No, but there's a component in there. And like, I don't care if you're going to U of I, going to Notre Dame, going to UIC, or any other place. You know, high schools, same thing, or go to the coding academies. There's a certain percentage of people that are just really thoroughly going to love doing this. And they're everywhere and nowhere. It, just, it always reminds me of the movie Ratatouille with, uh, you know, everyone can cook. It doesn't mean everyone can. It means that, you know, everyone, there's a potential. Exactly. Right? And there's no way to know that it's not a rat, you know? So, you know, Remy is, is the, the, my opinion of like, there's a ton of really great software developers out there that just don't know that they'd be great at building software. Exactly. And if I may quickly follow up on that, when I graduated from computer science, from my master's in computer science, the dot-com bubble had happened 
And I did not necessarily find a job as a software engineer. I was a client-facing integration engineer or support engineer kind of a role for a year and a half. And then I was lucky for my... um, the director of engineering at that point of time, he saw the potential and he knew that's what I went to school for. So the first opportunity there was, he gave me the opportunity to uh, be a junior level software engineer, right? So that was uh, a great experience for me because I was one of the few people on that team who actually knew about the business versus other software engineers. And since then, what I've try to do kind very deliberately whenever the opportunity comes up is when people start joining or or women or anyone for that matter join as a manual testing engineer or client support team if they show any level of aptitude or start asking questions i start giving them the opportunities to start moving into software engineering if that's something they are interested in and that's so valuable and the, that's something if leaders can look for that talent even outside of your group because some of them may not have had the opportunity to do uh, undergrad in computer science or there was a fear or kind of uh, intimidation factor there. So if you can start giving those opportunities and looking for the, it just brings so much value to the organization and yourself. And yeah. There is a, it's it's an interesting, I think when I was younger, uh, this concept came up you know, uh, having worked in a number of consulting firms where the folks who came from a non-CS background, as they became leaders, were more confident of people with non-CS backgrounds. And there was kind of a, uh, we're better than you. (laughs) CS people are like, yeah, we got a CS degree. So we understand all of this stuff underneath. And as a person with CS degree, I understand that that's irrelevant, especially more so now than ever with cloud, right? Like, no. (laughs) right? Like you need to know even less, like it's a problem. But to your point of like the people who actually did work on the client facing side, even if it wasn't at the company that they were currently at, they understood how business was actually done. Right. And how, mm-hmm. yeah, I, just, I remember first one project I was on at a consulting firm and they're like, well, you know, we're going to talk about what I forget. It was like a, an ERP system or, or uh, their, their financial systems. And I'm like, I have no idea what these words are. Right, like you're talking about like a financial whatever, like a book. What? No, like what do you do with this thing? (laughs) But I could give you an O notation on like a while loop if you'd want, you know, as if that's relevant. (laughs) But I I do think you know when we get into that business conversation, asking the why questions, right, or how to actually dig in overcomes technical challenges or technical abilities. So. Is that something that when, you know, as you're building your teams, is that something that you coach and, and, and reinforce with with uh, everybody on your on, on the technology side? Oh, 110%, especially uh, because, like I just said, personally, because I made the move from the client-facing account management side of things into software engineering, I have the perspective to appreciate what are you to ask the question what are you actually solving and understand the value of knowing your customer's business or knowing your own business knowing what your customers needs are and that uh, empathizing with them and that empathy muscle needs to happen from the big it needs to be part of your culture 
it within engineering teams, I think, for, for you to have the best outcome. So yes, uh, it's something I do um, for different people. It's something I pay attention to. It's something I um, try to bring into the team in a few different forms, but it's definitely a deliberate uh, action that I take. So a it, it, couple of things. One, you mentioned deliberate forms, how you bring in. I'd love to hear more about that. I'd also like to know, is this is that one of your gates for like somebody who's going, you're going to look at uh, to be like a manager or a mentor or some kind of, uh, you know, leader inside of the team that they're not just technically sound, but uh, they really understand uh, the business and, and the customer component, especially in SaaS and client facing software is so critical, right? Like you need to know what the client's desires are what is it why are they doing this but so is that like part of like is there a technical component when you think about who you're going to make a manager as well as a a business awareness component of course so um the way i look at it in assessment for my own team or even when i'm hiring or performance review any of any of these activities or when i'm focusing on chatting with the engineer on a one-on-one there's three things primarily one is, of course, the technical competency. Are you continuously learning, growing? Do you know what what pattern to use when? Are you producing good quality work? And two is some level of leadership, which doesn't mean leading people, but are you a good team player? Do you have a sense of ownership? Do you? That's all leadership, right? And do you have the respect of the team? Are you able to respect different viewpoints on the team? That's And the third thing is domain which I refer to as business domain. Uh, Some folks are, some engineers are very interested. Some engineers are not that interested and that's fine, but there's a baseline of information you need to be curious about and know. When you're fresh out of college, it's it's different that they they don't know that, they they don't necessarily uh, appreciate it and you're coaching them. But if you're to become a manager, you are the glue or you are, you are the liaison between the business and your teams. And if you can appreciate um, the challenges of your internal business folks, let alone external customers, if you're not able to ask the right questions or asking questions is easy, asking right questions is harder. If you're not, and that, it just doesn't happen, you need to have enough context to be able to ask the right question. And that comes with curiosity. And from there, if you if you can do that, your team does not see you do that. They're not learning from you in that particular aspect, right? So it becomes important for the team to appreciate or know what the business is to have a very efficient team. Pay, pay less attention to story point velocity. Pay more attention to what your business is about, what your customers are about whether it's internal customers or external customers. That's great. Yeah, that curiosity component, I, I agree with you, can overcome even technical acumen to your point of like story points, like being able to move fast. And, you know, I, I always make the joke, like, you know, you get busy in a scrum and you might be thinking you're heading to Green Bay and you end up in Minnesota, right? <laughs> Where it's like, but uh, what happened? I don't know, right? We just got started and we were moving really fast and so we just kept going. And it's like awesome. You built something nobody wants. Fantastic. That's really that's great stuff. So now we're out of business, and uh, let's all go find new jobs. 
<laughs> uh, I, I can't remember where I read this or heard this. It talks about uh, startups. There aren't many startups that went out of business because they built too little. It's startups that went out of business because they built too much. That is awesome. So that's great stuff. I, I'm not. I, it's not my original view. I read it somewhere. So let's be honest. Nobody's got original views. We all stole something. <laughs> <laughs> And here's another lesson to the to the young and and want to be to be like an innovator and genius. Uh, there's a lot of really smart people out there doing the work. Uh, for me, research and development R and D isn't research and development; it's research and duplicate. Right? <laughs> and like, uh, tell me about a successful company where they didn't steal something from somebody else, right? Like, right, right. Yeah, the creativity comes in how you fit those stolen pieces together. That's that's where true creativity comes into play. A very good friend of mine uh, said to me when we started this, uh, started my last company, I said, you know, I'm a little confused. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. He's like, Pat, it's real simple. Just do what somebody else is currently doing and just don't do the part that other people hate. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, there's, there's a lot of genius there. You know, we put a lot of things out there. We put a lot of work into it. And it's really kind of that simple. I mean, I, I always just go back to Facebook of like, why did Facebook win, right? Why, you know, and that, 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 I don't know, I know we're a little off topic, but I just think the concept of being the, the first to market is such a flawed concept of success, right? Where it's like- You want to take their failures and avoid them. Totally, let them be your R&D team. Let them spend yes. the money. <laughs> just be ready to pounce. I mean, having worked at, at Motorola, who actually built the first iPhone. Yeah, right. right. So- and then they asked Motorola to build them a phone and then uh, just took the phone, you know, <laughs> thanks. You know, like, I mean, that's some genius moves right there. Uh, could we yeah. tell all your engineers to build us a phone? I have some friends who worked for decades at Motorola. I think they're all still sore about that. Well, and that's, the, yeah. I mean, it was an amazing organization with some just truly talented and innovative people, the collection of things that they put together and like the innovation that happened there was it's startling and disappointing. So, but you know, you live and you learn and you know, we, we've got a great uh, opportunity to take it all back, which is what I think is going to, we're going to do here in the next hundred years here in Chicago. So I also noticed you've been to, you know, you, you've been to many of the well-known organizations in Chicago and quite a few of them not so well-known. And so, you know, Something we talked about before was you, you mentioned that every organization is very different and some, some good lessons learned as you, as you traveled through your career. You know, what are some of the lessons learned that you've got uh, as you even move between these different organizations? I think one of the first few biggest lessons that just provided a ton of clarity to me personally was Every time I go into a new team, I have to unlearn so many things as much as I have to learn. The processes that I set up in my previous team work beautifully, and I come into this team, new team, and, and let's do the same process, and it, I fall flat on my face and realize, oh, the, the variables are very different. It's not the same. The people are so different, and the culture, the message, the communication, the hidden rules of or the unsaid rules within a company, within the teams, the, the, all those 
are so different. So just my, whenever I go into a new organization or a team or have new responsibility, it's really hard to kind of keep everything you know at bay and just truly focus on learning, being curious, learning about the people, learning about the culture there. You just can't walk in and just change a ton of things that it doesn't really turn out to be sustainable long-term change, whether it's on the technology side or organizational side, but just learning the first few months. And that, that was a big lesson from a leadership aspect. And uh, the other big lesson, which was super humbling and eye-opening was just how difficult people management is. I, as, as an individual contributor, as a tech lead, you don't necessarily appreciate the complexity of managing a team at all, right? Uh, I, I think when I became a first-time manager, I truly started appreciating how much of a pain I was to my previous manager. And how incredibly patient he had been with me. And I think I sent him a note six months into my new job uh, saying, okay, really, thank you for everything. <laughs> All the bickering and the complaining and how things are not perfect that I used to do. and. <laughs> and act as if everything should have been easier, done better. And it's it's just very humbling in that sense. It's um, And that's kind of also what got me into focusing on leadership is um, how do you build teams that just do great things, right? And how do you hire for that? How do you nurture that? How do you grow that team? That became a very interesting, in a way, an engineering problem <laughs> to uh, very curious and very interesting for me to uh, work on. And that's that feels very rewarding to me. Those are a few lessons that I've learned. You know, when you first started talking about how you have to adapt to the different you know, teammates that you have now and the different culture that you have, uh, I got to be honest, it made me think about the Chicago Bears and like uh, why they're not right and you're taking somebody who was in a different organization different culture different players you're trying to force feed the structure into a team and a culture that can't support it and and i think you see that uh, you know the big challenge that's going on right now with the bears is you've got you've got these conflicting worlds of you know the bears did things a different way than the chiefs did and you've got a coach who's not assessing his players like you're and figure out how to take their strengths and use them, cultivate them into a into a as high a performing team as you can. And that and I agree, it's engineering. And then to figure out what components are missing, what is the balance of, you know, a person who's a little bit more loquacious to if you have everybody who's just church mice, that's a problem. If you you've got the, you know, and to your point, you know, you you know, your instigator nature that you had to apologize for, right? Clearly that leader realized the value that you provided because the instigators in software are few and far between. I think we can all agree to that. So, and I think that's, I have a client that I was uh, consulting with and they were talking about their, somebody in their engineering leadership was causing a lot of problems. And I said, well, you know, the truth of the matter is 
that person's willing to cause problems. That's actually kind of an asset. <laughs> give them better information, right? Right. And to your point of like, you know, your goal is to get better. What leader doesn't want teammates, right? People that report to them who are passionate about improving, right? That's, I call it hiring people with batteries included, right? Exactly. <laughs> they bounce into the walls. They make a lot of noise. That's a good thing. It's a whole lot better than nothing, right? So Right. It shows a level of engagement. I, I uh, used to have an engineer. Every one-on-one was um, him complaining about something, but beneath all of that. So one, he was not at all negative outside the room. But with me, uh, as his manager, he would feel free to complain. But I think what I quickly realized in that process was he was actually challenging me, you know, with, without him realizing that. It was so, it was a lot of learning for me too from that. Okay, how do I solve this problem? He is right. It is important, maybe not this minute, but for tomorrow. How do I solve that? And I was definitely able to appreciate that. But as far as uh, my own manager, um, who was super kind and patient with me, it, it's probably more of um, his patience than anything else that I did. <laughs> well, I, I, and I hear you on the, uh, the, the folks that, I don't want to call them complainers, but identifiers of, of opportunities of improvement, right? I think one of the things that I always say, if that's the situation, I'm hoping, I'm open to listening, but you have to understand you're volunteering, right? Like, I'm with you. Yes. We should fix that. How are you going to help me do that? And if it's just, I want to spot problem, right? Like I say this about project managers. I want a project manager, not a project witness. Project witnesses are of no value, right? Like, hey, there's a problem. That's great. What are we going to do about it, right? That's <laughs> what we get paid for, right? If I, if I needed some flares yes. to go off, and don't get me wrong, there's a time to just shoot off flares, but it's got to lead to something. So if somebody's and I'm sure that was true about you. And I think that's true about most people who get to a level of success is that, you know, the reason why you became a leader is because you're like, look, I can, I can do this. I can make this better. Right. And it, it makes me think of a, a great book, uh, uh, The Motive by Patrick Lencioni. Uh Just came out about a year ago. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't. I'm, I'll make a note of and it. He really dissects the concept of, of servant leadership. And I think the the real challenge with servant leadership is that, People focus too much on the servant part, not enough about actually leading people, which is setting objectives, expectations, setting a pace, setting a tone, and then being a cheerleader and a a supporter and an advocate for those on the mission, as opposed to the back rubbing, it's all great, you're a wonderful person, without any actually leadership, you know? Right, right. And that's where I think I would put any money. I know you're being super humble and I'm not buying it. I'm just going to say, I think it really comes down to you had aspirations that things should be better. And that when your manager said, well, can you help me with that? You said, absolutely. And I think that's where it makes a big difference for, for me, at least personally, that you can have an opinion, but you're volunteering. For sure. And yes. And even, um, the engineer I was talking about a lot of times the person was very happy to help, uh, wanted to just find a way to make things happen. So, and that's, that's true of most, uh, I've been very fortunate to have very, uh, good people work 
with me on my team. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your experience. Uh, it's been great watching what's going on over at ShipGig. Uh, I think there's, you know, it's a huge marketplace of, of opportunities there. And I do think we've got, Chicago still has just untapped ability to, to really regain, you know, take all these different communities that we still can. I just, I think about it, it's got to be like a call to arms of like, we've got to get people involved in this. We don't have enough. You know, we could be doing more, creating more value at the same point in time, creating, you know, uh, equity uh, in, in all these communities, which make Chicago a greater, healthier place. So it, it's a really great time for all these organizations to start looking places where they haven't. Uh, and I think to your point, I think many of them are. They realize that this is this is something that's not just good to do, but almost necessity for their business. 100%. And whenever I have such conversations with uh, even my leadership, the first thing I'd like to make clear is diversity is a business imperative. It, yes, it's the right thing to do, but it is an absolute business imperative to make sure your teams are hiring well, hiring diversely and promoting diversely and getting truly great ideas to the table. Otherwise, it's a lost opportunity for businesses and communities as a whole. And uh, yeah, Chicago does truly have great potential, great schools around our Illinois. And uh, and I think people are great too over here. So we should uh, hopefully over the next uh, decade or so, we will be better than Silicon Valley. I'm with you. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Thanks again for taking the time to, to speak with us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Patrick. Thank you, Shelley. Appreciate it. Thank you. You have a wonderful rest of the day. We'd also like to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.